When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. No, I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, I, I just, I played, I enjoyed it. I don't even know what my stats were. When I played the game, it was different. And, uh, you know, this sabermetric stuff is, is changing the game. Just, uh, it's a whole different game now. And it's going to be interesting how it, it plays out. But back in our day, uh, it was completely different. It's going to be interesting to see how baseball spans out. Folks, today's podcast brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. I've worked with Roy for years, and trust me, folks, you can count on Roy's Umbrella for a very low rate on your home loan. No tricks, no nonsense. No extra charges at the end. Tell you something else I love about Roy. He has been so loyal to me, and the people that I've referred him to come back and tell me the same thing. He's going to treat you like family. Again, for all of your home loan needs, go to roysumbrella.com. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest today played 11 years in the bigs with the Dodgers and the Twins. He was a big star in the 1988 World Series where the Dodgers beat the A's in five games. He batted 368 with two homers and five RBI. He then went on to coach with Texas for a year and then the Angels for 12 years. He is Mickey Hatcher joining us here on the podcast. Mick, it's great to catch up with you. How are you, man? Good. Your ratings are going to probably go down today, but it's good to join you. <laughs> hey, um, we, I, I want to start off talking about Tommy Lasorda. And uh, as we speak here on November 16th, uh, he is in the hospital in intensive care. And I know that he's had a big influence on your life. What was it like playing and being around Tommy Lasorda? Oh, it was, you know, he was amazing. He was a great motivator. You know, I dedicate my whole life to him because he really was a guy that molded me not only during the baseball season, getting the best out of me, but uh, my coaching career and, and stuff that he had taught me that uh, th- that gave me a career in baseball for my whole life uh, uh, during baseball and after baseball. But, uh, you know, a funny story is that uh, yesterday we got the call. He's in intensive care and me and Mike Socia were playing golf. And they, and uh, so we send a video recording over to uh his daughter and uh, his daughter played it for Tommy and Tommy kind of opened his eyes and put a big smile on his face. So uh, we really felt good about that. And and she says, uh, you know, he's a fighter and and hopefully he'll get through this. But uh, Tommy was just a great motivator. He expected everybody to, to play hard and, and never feel sorry for themselves part of fail, failing was part of growing up and, and you move on and, 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 and learn from it. And, uh, uh, he was that type of guy that, uh, really made guys play a lot better than what they were. Boy, what a great story. To. What a great story about you and Mike sending that video, uh, yeah. and, and Tommy smiling and, and, and boy, a storyteller, right? I mean, you could write book after book after book with your time around Tommy was sort of great manager, great baseball guy, but funny as all heck, right? Oh, he's funny, but I don't think I could share a lot of the really good stories on air. But, uh, you know, he was just an amazing person. And, uh, you know, he loved his players. He was like a, a dad to them. And, uh, you know, I'll share a story when I first came up and me and Mike Socia were rookies. And he says, hey, I'm going to this Italian restaurant. Go to the Italian restaurant. And he says, get a, get a booth. 
He says, just get a menu, don't order anything. And he says, just keep looking at me. And so the manager comes over and he points at our table. And so he gives us, he goes, if I go to my chin, that means I'm going to talk to him. If I go to my nose, it's looking good. If I go to my ear, he goes, get the most expensive restaurant. He's paying for it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was Tommy. So whenever we went to the rear, his ear, boy, we went for it. <laughs> I love but it. But he took care of his young guys, you oh. know, and, and that was Tommy. That is unbelievable. Uh, the 1988 World Series, that dramatic game one, you let off with, with a home run. You had an amazing World Series. Of course, that's the Gibby uh, pinch hit home run to win the game. And with Oral Hershiser going in game two, and he was so brilliant. I mean, did you all feel in the clubhouse that the series was over after game one, that there was no way you were going to lose that? Uh, I don't, I just, you know, we never looked ahead. We just, uh, we showed it up at the ballpark. We did our jobs and we played the game. And, uh, but you know, as the season was going on, just so many magical things were happening. We were winning so many games with, with, you know, Kirk Gibson scored from second base to win a game from us on a pass ball. And, uh, you know, we had some of the rookies hit home runs to, I mean, we were down like eight to five in one game, and one of our young rookies with two outs in the bottom of the ninth hits a grand slam, and and Oral Hershiser just an amazing streak at the end, and and I mean, we just so much stuff happened that it kept kept that positive uh, vibe for our team. We just knew, and when Kirk Gibson hit that home run, it was like you know we're just we're just keep carrying this on. Just something happens, and all we had to do was stay close, and we felt that we could win, and that was our team. Here's something for you. I went to college with Oral Hershiser. He and Roger McDowell were on the pitching staff together at Bowling Green and still couldn't win it. They uh, couldn't still win it. But that, but that year, 1988, and I always look back because I'm a Yankee fan, the year that Ron Guidry had in 78 where he was 25-3 and three and an ERA of 1.74, that's the best year I've ever seen a pitcher have. But talk to me about 88 and Oral, Oral Hershiser because he was, he was just he was on a different planet. Oh, he was. He, um, you know, Mike said, you know, behind the plate, it didn't matter where he called her or what he put. That movement that he had, he was just so in the zone. Uh, he just, uh, you know, he had his little pads out there that he'd look at every once in a while when a hitter would come up. You see the guys doing it in their hats now, but he was so in tune uh, to his pitches and his movement, and he just made these guys look full full bad and uh, you looked at the Mets lineup I mean they Mets lineup had a, t a lineup like uh, the Dodgers did with all them hitters in the lineup and he just uh, he just tore them apart he just uh, I mean they looked foolish up there in some of his pitches and the late movement he had and uh, he just was amazing and that 59 inning streak was just it was just unbelievable when he took the mound we knew all we had to do was manufacture a couple runs for him and he was going to win Mickey, one of the great lines from an announcer after you hit your first home run in the World Series, Joe Garagiola saying he's running like he's afraid they're going to take it off the board. That's the quickest anyone's ever run around the bases. But that's how you played, right? You just, you, you, on a walk, you, you ran the first. And where did that come from? Were you raised that way? Talk, talk to me about that, that work ethic and that drive and your passion for playing baseball. Well, I had a lot to do with my dad. My dad said, you know, when you step on the field, you have to leave it on the field. No matter how bad you play or how good you play, you leave it on the field. People will respect that. And uh, your your other ball players that are surrounding you will, will play the same way. And I always believe that. You know, if, if I was going to be a kind of a leader, uh, I was going to be a leader because I was going to play hard and, and hustle. And my dad used to always, you know, show me the war movies and, especially D-Day when the guys hit the beach. He said, them guys aren't, well, them guys aren't strolling on the beach. They're running. <laughs> and uh, right. he said, uh, you know, he says, you got to be like that. And you know what? I, I did it. And, you know, I tell the young kids, if you do it and you keep doing it, you will always, you'll always be that player. And, you know, you, it'll be amazing. You might, you might get thrown out of first base, you know, Eight out of eight out of ten times, but the two times you beat it out might help you win a game. And uh, you know, I just believed in that. You never know if a guy's going to drop the ball or what he's going to throw it away. And and you just you just play hard, and and that's just how I was. 
that celebration in the dugout after your first home run in the 88 World Series where you look like you're going to break your forearm or your hands with the celebration. Running around the bases in a World Series, uh, I can't imagine there are too many things greater in life than that. Well, the big thing was, you know, I was a utility player, so I wasn't a starter. But, you know, the last month of the season, I was probably swinging the bat as good as I've ever been and felt really good. And and, uh, I remember – you know, in the first game of the playoffs against the Mets, Tommy goes, uh, you know, because I was starting pretty much all the time down the stretch. And Tommy says, Mick, I can't start you. I got to put you on the bench. He goes, I have to have you pinch hit. I don't have that guy I, I have confidence in. He goes, I want to have you on the bench to pinch hit. And I'm like, you know, my heart just dropped because, you know, God, I wanted to play so bad. This is my first playoffs. And I, and uh, so, I said, okay, Tommy, and we lost the first game against the Mets. He called me in the office. He said, get your first base and Matt, you're starting. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get out there. I'm going to play, and I'm not going to give him an excuse to take me out of the game. And, uh, you know, then when I got in the World Series, of course, Gibby, Gibby was out, and and I started, and uh, I just, uh, you know, it just felt so good. And when I hit that ball, my first at bat, you know, I'm used to the ball landing off the top of the wall because I always hit line drives and I hit that. It was a line drive. And, uh, so I'm running around the base and I didn't see it. So I was as shocked as, uh, how many million people were watching it on TV and at the stadium. I was shocked as them that that ball went out of the park. <laughs> three, three, 368 in that world series, two homers, five RBI. And if it weren't for oral, you may have been the MVP of that series, but, Talk about, you know, you you were feeling good that you were hitting the ball very well. And I love talking to baseball players about this. Uh, some some guys get up there and they're guessing, gee, what's the pitcher going to throw? And then I always remember, you know, Vladimir Guerrero. He said, hey, I don't, I don't guess about anything. I see it and I hit it. What was your approach at the plate? Same thing. I mean, I was very – my hand-eye coordination, I, I was a very – contact hitter and I that's why I didn't strike out very much you know I was able to put the ball in play with two strikes I was able to cut my swing down and do that which is not in the, the way the game is played now uh, but that's how we were taught and uh, you know just for and I, you know I was I, I hit a lot of balls hard and made a lot of outs and, and and did that but I was a pretty good contact hitter yeah, as I said, the World Series in five games, and, you know, Oral was so good in the two starts that he had. I was actually at game five in Oakland when you guys clinched, and I was right next to the Dodgers dugout because I was working for a, a TV station at the time in Sacramento. And crazy, and I, you can't make this up, but I'm covering the World Series, and you know how Oakland was back then. There was a lot of room behind the backstop and where the stand started, and the media back then could could kind of stand back there. You would never be able to do that now, plus there were stands there. But the final out of the World Series, and Oral went the distance, and you guys come running out of the dugout, and I see a couple of media members run out onto the field, too, and I'm like, screw it, I got my press pass, and I run out onto the field, and I am in the infield as you're celebrating, the Dodgers are celebrating, and I and I, I shouldn't have been on the field, but I didn't care, I'm going like, you know, what the hell, I'm on the field, <laughs> and, and, and I, I kid you not, I'm probably 10 feet away from Oral when they did the you have just won the World Series, and where, where are you going now? And he goes, I'm going to Disney World. And I was literally 10 feet from him. But the celebration, the jubilation of being with a group of guys for that long and and winning it, take me into the locker room after the game, the clubhouse, the camaraderie, that group of guys that you played with. I, I, that, that stays with you forever, obviously. But are the players on that team, some of them still to this day, some of your best friends? Oh yeah, we, we you know we get together. We had the big event with Dod- at Dodger Stadium uh, a couple of years ago. They brought in the '88 team, and we we and uh, Vince Scully. We had a big dinner and a banquet. And Sandy Colfax and a lot of the teams there, players from other World Series were there. And we did the banquet with a lot of the '88 guys coming up and talking. And Vince Scully left led the. Uh, uh, the banquet and uh, Peter O'Malley, the owner, came in, and it was a it was a tearjerker because you know what, a lot of guys that had an opportunity. We did the video. If you ever watched the 1988 World Series uh, video, and you see all the guys that speak on there and, and talk and kind of narrate it, 
as as they're playing it through. You see these guys speaking from their hearts, and a lot of them, you know, bring tears to their eyes. And it was just a special year from how it started in spring training with Gibby's rant raging, I don't want to play on this team, to us pulling it together and becoming a team and, and finishing to win a World Series. It was a special year, none of like any other team. What was it like being around Vin Scully, who, you know, when people think of the Dodgers, a lot of people think, obviously, Tommy Lasorda, and they think Vin Scully. What was that like being around such a a prolific, legendary announcer, even back then in the 80s? Well, Vince was special, and, and he was so special that when other teams, no matter if it was Cincinnati or or Pittsburgh, or, or uh, it was teams back east. When they come in, they, you know, a lot of these players wanted to have the opportunity to meet Vince Scully, and a lot of these guys would, would they would take him up and and just meet Vince because Vince, you know, to everybody, when Vince would do a game, it didn't matter if you were the home team or the away team. He had stories and. He wrote he wrote books about these guys uh, on the radio, just telling stories about how they grew up and their families and stuff like that. And uh, you know, if you listen to Vince, you you would know what I'm talking about, which you probably did, uh, being your sure. you, announcer like you are. With all you do a good job too. Uh, he was just a, a, a amazing a storyteller, and these players from everywhere loved him, and I think that's what made him so special. You know, in all the times that you and I have been together, I don't know if we've ever talked about you playing football at Oklahoma. You went to Mesa's Junior College for two years, and then you're on the Oklahoma Sooners playing both football and baseball. Barry Switzer was the coach. Billy Sims was the running back. What was that like? Oh, it was great, but it was like, I I could tell you another funny story here. How much time we have? (laughs) Uh, Keep going, man. Hey, the the floor Uh, is all yours, Mickey. So I go, uh, I go to uh, Oklahoma, and, and Barry Switzer comes to my house. My dad loved him, and so they recruit me. I said, "Hey, I'll go there, but I got to play baseball and football." And they said, "No problem." And I said, "Well, I'm going to go this summer playing Alaska League." And then and he goes, "No problem." So I'm in Alaska League, and we win it. We go to a championship. Well, OU's practicing already. They're like two a days or whatever. Barry's trying to get a hold of me. I'm not returning his calls. Because uh, I know what he wants, and so we play the playoffs. I show up to OU. It's like one of their last practices, and I get in uniform and I run out there, and all the players are looking at me like, "Oh, who is this guy?" Hmm. And uh, I get in the huddle, and Barry's pissed. Comes over, he says, "You know how to run an end around?" And I go, "Yeah." So I get in the huddle, run an end around, nobody blocks, I get crushed. <laughs> get in the huddle, go the other way. Boom, go the other way. So I do this like six, seven times. Then I see Selman looking at one of our defensive backs who says, I got him this time. And I said, okay. And I didn't know that this was one of our All-American guys. I said, I know who's going to tackle me. So I came around the end and I hid behind one of our big linemen and when I come around the corner, I just speared him right underneath his chest, and I knocked him out. Wow. And I got up and ran back. And now this time, I'm beat up, man. These guys are killing me. <laughs> but I know that, you know, I'm getting paid for not being here. And So practice ends. Well, Uwe von Schumann, you remember the soccer kicker? Sure. Uh, goes, Mick, hey, we're going to the South 40. was a bar. He said the owner's got a keg of beer and all this stuff and we're going to go there and uh, you know, it's our big day before the, we start our first game. And I said, I don't know. I don't think these players like me. And uh, he goes, come on. So we get down there and drinking some beer. I get on this table, country Western uh, uh, bars dance. And I jump up and my head went through the ceiling and I was just stuck and my feet were like <laughs> dangling. And one of the linemen come over and pulled my feet down. I hit the table, fell on the floor, grabbed this girl's pitcher of beer, guzzled it, put it on the table. The players loved me after that. I was like the team mascot. <laughs> and so I, I and, and uh, a quick one here with two. So Barry Switzer gets the Dallas Cowboy job. And he comes to Dallas, and he, I'm coaching Texas, and he calls Texas and says, I'm coming down to a game. I want Mickey Hatcher to show him around. So he comes in. I show him around, go in the locker room, and everybody's 
in there and he goes, uh, all these players go, what kind of, uh, football player with Mickey Hatcher, he's probably one, and Barry goes, he's one of the worst recruits I've ever got <laughs> in the history of Oklahoma University, but he was funny and the players loved him, so he worked out great for our team. <laughs> <laughs> worst recruit ever. <laughs> worst, worst recruit I ever recruited my oh. whole life. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, but he didn't have to do that, that's what, uh, you know, that's why I respected him so much. Well, what was it like, though, you know, back then, Oklahoma and Nebraska was one of the top rivalries uh, in the country, along with Oklahoma, Texas. But Oklahoma and Nebraska, what was it like being part of that? Oh, we played in 12 below zero, a game there in Nebraska, and we won it at the end. And uh, I remember, I remember, uh, you know, I we lost our quarterback that couldn't pass because I was a receiver. So I turned out to be just a wide receiver blocker <laughs> and we were playing that game. And four times I came across the field and, and knocked, I crushed this defensive back. I crushed him on a block. So we're going and, and we're down by, I think one touchdown. And we had a guy named Elvis Peacock or it was Horace Ivory. And so I ran across the field and I crushed this guy right in front of Barry Switzer. Well, I'm switching plays off with the, with another uh, receiver. So I go in and Barry grabs me right away and throws me out there and says, call this play. And I go out there and it's the first time. Well, the, the defensive guy looks at me and says, I'm going to kill you. Next time you come over here, I'm going to kill you. And Barry sees that and he sends me back out and lines me up right in front of this guy. And uh, we run a we run a, a sweep, and I get in front of this guy, and all he is is he comes after me. I kind of low block him. He gets on top of me, and he's like elbowing me on the ground. And Elvis Peacock goes right around him for a touchdown. <laughs> and uh, and the guy runs off the field. Osborne grabs him, and you can see him grabbing his helmet, running him all over the place. And I also did in that game a fake punt. Wow, it was. Uh, fourth and 25 I did a fake punt and I ran and I got hit so hard that I face mask I could see the smile on my chest and wow. I got the first down by like a half an inch <laughs> how about that man <laughs> but it was like you know it was a big leagues for football for me and you know I'll never regret not going there but uh Man, college football uh, at that level was that was big leagues. Speaking of big leagues, your baseball career. Take me back a little bit to your childhood. Around what age was it where you thought you might have a chance to play pro baseball? You know, actually, I never really thought about it. I just back in those days, you know, you played. I played three sports: football, basketball, baseball. Uh, which in basketball in high school, I still have a state record in Arizona for most fouls in a season, most fouls in a career. But, uh, you know, we, we played three sports. And uh, I just remember in my high school year, you know, I'm just playing baseball, whatever. And then all of a sudden I get a call. Uh, my dad gets a call that Houston Astros drafted me in like, I don't even know what round it was. And, and, uh, and that's when I started thinking, you know, wow. You know, maybe that opportunity might come. And uh, as I went to junior college and then, uh, you know, went to OU, uh, you know, I kept getting calls from pro clubs and uh, about maybe signing and, and giving it a shot in Major League Baseball, or, you know, in the minor leagues and stuff. And, and I think that's when it started coming together, probably after my senior year in high school. Other than your father or a family member, is there one individual – that you look back on and say, okay, that, that individual had the biggest impact on my life as far as sports is concerned? I just think all my coaches were, you know, I was gifted with having just so many great coaches that, uh, you know, taught me how to play the game, uh, taught me how to be a professional, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, I think every, you could say every coach in your, your whole life was kind of a mentor. And each year you got uh, better, the coaches got better, you know, and it's like I tell all these kids in little league, 
in and uh, in, in especially little league now and and t-ball that they're the guys that are going to make the biggest influence on all these young kids in baseball motivating them teaching them how to play the game teaching them how to be professional making them understand that hey it's you're not you're going to fail in this game it's not always going to be that easy but you work hard and you can get there. So I think the younger coaches in the game, if, if I'm out there right now uh, talking, it's, it's those are the guys that are the key in getting these guys uh, to get going through their career to maybe give them that chance to play Major League Baseball. Mickey, in 1982, I believe, I'm working at a TV station in Toledo, Ohio, the ABC affiliate and the Toledo Mudhens were the AAA affiliate with the Twins. And you spent, you know, the middle part of that decade in Minnesota. And I watched Kirby Puckett play for the Mudhens and Tim Tuffle and Gary Guidi, the team that ends up going to Minnesota and winning a world championship. But that was that had to be such a, a drastic change for you. California guy, Dodgers, then the Minnesota before you got back to L.A. What was that experience like for you? Oh, it was great because uh, – you know, when I was with the Dodgers, they, you know, they had Ron Say, they had all those guys there, and I was playing good, and I wanted to play. And uh, so it, when I got traded to Minnesota, I knew I was going to play. And um, when I went to Minnesota, you know, for me, it was just uh, a thrill to have that opportunity to play, and I didn't have to wait for, like, uh, Ron Say or those guys because they still had three more years on their contract. So I just wanted to play. And uh, – you know, because in college I went to Alaska, you know, I went to South Dakota. So it's not like I haven't been to other places to go play baseball. And I just enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it's just a big thrill. And then watching those guys come up, especially Kirby Puckett, uh, you know, uh, Calvin Griffin was just an amazing, amazing guy for, for his organization with his young talent guys and uh, I remember him calling me up to his office he says Mickey I'm bringing this guy up his name's Kirby Puckett and I says I want to put his locker right next to you I want you to show him how to go out to the outfield acknowledge to the fans I said this this kid's going to be a special guy so when Kirby Puckett came in I mean he's sitting there uh, next to my locker he didn't have a shirt on he looked like a bowling ball he was just like this round, stocky, strong yeah, kid. He was, he, yeah, and he I was. said, you know, while you're down there, can you clean my shoes too? <laughs> and uh, he kind of looked at me, and, and, and we ended up becoming the best of friends. And uh, and just watching this guy just mature was mm. just uh, uh, amazing for me. Well, I got to tell you, when we watched him in AAA – there was not one person that would ever go to the ballpark, and you knew. You knew you were going to be watching someone special. Daryl Strawberry was on the Tidewater Tides back then. You know, uh-huh. I, I used to love minor league baseball, Mickey. I really did because you get to see the stars before they're the stars. But even when you watch them on that level, you go, okay, this this player has a chance to be really good. But Kirby Puckett, I mean, of all the players that you play with, and I was going to ask you this, but regardless of whether it was the Twins or the Dodgers or somebody you coached with all your years at the Angels, the most talented, well, let's keep it with you as a player, most talented player you ever played with. Could you pick one guy or is or are there just too many? Would there be four or five? But Kirby Puckett would have to be in the conversation, right? Oh, Kirby Puckett was, yeah. yeah I got to admit, Kirby Puckett was, you know, uh, by far probably one of the best younger guys that I've had an opportunity to watch come up on, on my teams. Uh you know, there wasn't that many with the Dodgers. We had more, more of an old veteran team. We had some young guys that that had a little bit of talent, but uh, nothing like, you know, the Dodgers right now with their young talent that they come up, uh, you know, having the opportunity to be around uh, uh, Michael Trout. Uh, I got to tell you, that's to, him, to me, that's one of the best uh, that I've seen in the game uh, coming up as a, as a young player. And uh, he he is just, uh, you know, I put him in there with Kirby Puckett, uh, but Michael Trout is just, uh, he's he's what everybody talks about. He's just, to watch him, to stand next to him, to see him, you know, and and he just reminds me so much of my idol, Mickey Mantle, uh, that it's just like, uh, 
it's he's he's one that's really fun to watch. I used to love watching Mickey Mantle as a kid, uh, Mick, and in the '60s going to Yankee Stadium. I always tell the story in Little League. We used to fight over who could get to wear number seven, and then when we would go to bat day at Yankee Stadium, and you'd go through the turnstile, and you would just pray that the bat you were given had Mickey Mantle's signature on it. You didn't want Horace Clark. <laughs> you didn't want Tom Trash. You didn't want any. You wanted yeah. Mickey Mantle, and if you didn't get Mantle's bat, it would break your heart. You know, I want to go back to one of the most dramatic home runs in major league history as i'm circling back to 88 as a player in the dugout lasorda calling on gibby to pinch hit did you think he was crazy did you think gibson would be able to go up and deliver as a teammate knowing what the the pain and and everything that he was dealing with well the scenario the scenario was no we had a runner on first base uh Gibby's going to come up and we're asking him to just get a, a, you know, to get a hit. I mean, a hit didn't mean nothing for us there. Gibby couldn't even run. So now you got to pinch hit him. We ran it. We probably have to use a pitcher to pinch hit for him. We ran out of players. So everybody's like looking at Tommy. God, you got to be crazy, Tommy. But when Davis stole second base, I changed the whole scenario. We're down by one. Gibby can get a hit here. You know, and that's what we're thinking about. Gibby's going to battle. He's going to get a hit here. Uh, we got a chance to get back in the game, tie the game. When he hit the home run, I think everybody was in shock. So I think the scenario changed when, when Davis stole second, uh, uh, made a big difference in, in how everybody felt with uh, Gibby's at bat. Hard to believe that 1988, and you have to go all the way to what we witnessed last month, with the Dodgers winning a world championship. And who would have thought, right? I mean, a team with that kind of payroll, that kind of money going that long. And it just goes to show you, you know what? Dan Marino went through this as a rookie with Miami. He ended up in the Super Bowl the first year and lost to San Francisco. And people are like, oh, Dan Marino is going to be in the Super Bowl every year. Never got a chance to experience that. And that's the beauty of sports, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, you know what? Just like Dodgers this year, I mean, everything played out for them. 28-man roster. Uh, you know, just help their team. Just having the DH every game helped their team. Uh, you know, they they were a team that could have probably won it three years in a row. I mean, their talent is there. They keep the talent, and uh, they're a special team. But you take a team like ours, we had to earn it. <laughs> yeah, and and we it was a whole different type of a season. So, you know, two World Series, two special World Series. But nothing can take away from 88 uh, with a lot of us that played there and even Vince Scully and and uh, a lot of those people even say the same thing. That was, that was a special year. I'll tell you one more story. You know, I told you Mickey Mantle was my idol in the World Series. When we were, well, in the playoffs, we were playing the Mets. And every time I go to New York, I always went to Mickey Mantle's restaurant. Never met Mickey Mantle, never seen him. And I'm in his restaurant and doing a radio show because I knew the manager there. I'd do a radio show. They would feed me and give me drinks. And I said, that that's good enough for me. And uh, so I did the show and I'm sitting there eating and the manager comes over. He says, hey, Mickey wants to talk to you. And I'm like, why do you got to go there? <laughs> and he, he, turn, he turns and points and Mickey Mantle's at his table calling me over. And I walk over and I'm like a little kid, my knees shaking. Mickey's there. He goes, Hey Mick, I want to thank you for coming to the show. Blah, blah, blah. My manager says you come in all the time. I appreciate that. You know, kick the Mets ass. Mm. And I said, Hey, well, and I go, I, you know, thank Mick for the opportunity to meet you. Wish my dad was here. You know, he, he was your idol and you know, I don't want to keep you anymore. And wow. he gets the menu and he signs it to me. And, uh, my wife's got it hanging up in the room. And as I walk away, he grabs me around the neck. And he goes, your name's Mickey, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, you better start hitting some home runs. <laughs> and I said, because like, I think I hit one that year. And I go, okay, Mick. <laughs> so I ended up hitting two home runs in a World Series. 
And I did an interview after. I said, you know what? If Mickey Mantle was my hitting coach, I might have made some money in this game. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I love it. What a phenomenal, phenomenal story. I mean, you know, that, and I've been to that restaurant many times right up there on the on uh, Central Park uh, there. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, think about that. You're going in there and, and your idol is in there. And not only is he in the air, but he wants to meet you and talk to you. Uh, that That's great. Yeah. I love that story, man. That is awesome. You know, That we, was amazing. Oh, it, it was amazing. As we wrap this up, your career, when you look back at everything, whether it was in college at Oklahoma or whether it was the Dodgers, the Twins, is there one game, one at-bat, one instance in your sports career that still bites you, still eats at you, still like, oh, man, if I could just go back and relive that one moment. Do you have a moment like that in your sports career? No, I'm not that smart. <laughs> I really, you know, I, I just, I played, I enjoyed it. I don't even know what my stats were, you know, with, with when I played the game, it was different. And, uh, you know, this sabermetric stuff is, is changing the game. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's a whole different game now. And it's going to be interesting how it, it plays out. But back in our day, uh, it was completely different, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how baseball spans out. You brought up sabermetrics. Alex Rodriguez, after the World Series, said that it's killing baseball. Do you agree with that? Well, I'm telling you what. Yeah, I mean, not too many fans. I, there ain't any fans that I talk to that un, that just believe in it, especially with what they, you know, the managers move on Blake the Snell in the sixth game of the world series. No, terrible. nothing can, nothing can say that that stuff works. And, and what happens is they're going to get so caught up with it. They're not going to have any managers in the game of baseball. You know, it's all going to be, uh, they're going to call down. Okay. Sixth inning. This guy says, Hey, the stats say this and that, but it's not telling the full story. This game is being taught now by just, uh, you know, all the numbers and everything. Well, you know, we did all that and, and a lot of it works. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't. I think we've gone in there and watched videos and do stuff, get our players, certain individuals, what's going on. But, you know, when we were taught coming up, we were taught to hit to all fields. Uh, you know, back in our day, they could not do these shifts. Guys were too good of a hitters to, to be able to break these shifts and, bunt and, 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 you know, hit and run and, and do stuff, which I think the fans really enjoy that part of the game. And, uh, to see a guy like that go out there, your best pitcher in the game, and you're going to pull him after six innings or three rounds of the bats with a two hitter and do stuff like that is just going to really turn off a lot of people. That's, that's my opinion. Well, I, I love talking to you, Mick. And I got to tell you, you're the most, I've never seen a person get as excited as you did over Jim boys, tacos. Uh, <laughs> my oh God. my gosh, man. <laughs> Trying to get the guy to come and park his truck in front of my house. A few times. <laughs> For the quick story, uh, Mickey would come play at my golf tournament and uh, Jim boys, tacos w- was nice enough to donate uh, food and they would bring their big truck and park it along the, third hole and Mick Mick being in Southern California had never heard of Jim Boy's tacos and the, re- the rest of the day I had volunteers like escort I would say all right every every half hour go to that truck and get a couple of tacos find out where Mickey is and drop them off boy that was Dude, great I used stuff to go, I- it was on the third hole. I got to the seventeenth hole, drove back to the third hole to get some more tacos and back take back to the seventeenth hole. Oh, that was good, man. Uh, that was good. Hey, uh, Mick, I got to tell you, man, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Uh, it's so uh, awesome uh, to spend thirty-five minutes or so with you, and uh, we're all praying for Tommy Lasorda. I know he had a great impact on your life, and uh, thanks for sharing the stories, man. It was great stuff. We really appreciate it. Always great, Grant, and good to hear you back on the on the radio. Uh, you're an amazing uh, person, and uh, wish you all the best, and give your lovely wife a hug for me. Will do, Mick. Thanks very much. You're the best. It's now time for Q&A, and if you go to crowdquestion.com, it is very easy to sign up, and then you can ask me a question, and I may answer it on my podcast. And we're also going to start taking voice messages, so keep that in mind. Again, just go to crowdquestion.com. All right, Eric starts us off. If you were the owner of the Jets— What would you do to solve their problems? Love the podcast. Well, Eric, thanks for listening. 
I don't know if it would solve their problems, but first and foremost, they need a new head coach. It's very apparent. The veteran players that have left that football team over the past couple of months have always said the same thing as it relates to Adam Gase. If I own the New York Jets, I'm getting a new general manager. I'm getting an absolute stud as a football evaluator. And I'm teaming him with a head coach that they can both work together. And then as an owner, I'm staying out of the picture and I'm letting them do the rest. That's what I would do. All right, Mark, ask me, who would be your starting five if you could choose any NBA player throughout history and who would be your coach? It's very difficult to answer this question, but I'm going to because we're talking about a sport that encompasses so many decades. But you asked a question. And so I will answer. I'm probably going to have Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan in my backcourt. And my front line is going to be LeBron James, Tim Duncan, and Wilt Chamberlain. Now, you're probably going, wait a minute, no Larry Bird? No Bill Russell? Yeah, I thought about this. But LeBron James, better all-around player than Larry Bird. And Wilt Chamberlain, I, 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 I have to put him in there. You know, I really do. If you said you want Bird and Russell, I'd say, okay, who are you taking out? You're obviously taking out Chamberlain. You're taking out LeBron James. LeBron James has to be among the top five. I I just don't see how it couldn't. All right, who would be my coach? Probably going to take Greg Popovich because Pop would be able to deal with all the personalities. Pop would be able to treat everyone the same. There would be no special rules. And so I'm going to take Greg Popovich as my head coach. All right. Grant asks, not me, another Grant, how much of the Miami Heat success was because of the bubble and avoiding the nightlife distractions? Had nothing to do with the nightlife distractions, had nothing to do with the bubble. I'll tell you what it has to do with, Grant, and it's a very good question. It has to do with ownership, okay? It has to do with Mickey Arison, who is a tremendous owner, because Mickey Arison has hired Pat Riley to run his franchise. And Mickey stays in the background, and Mickey doesn't interfere. And so you let Pat Riley put the team together, and every single person in the Miami franchise, whether you are in the ticket department, whether you are the equipment manager, whether you are a broadcaster, whether you're a secretary, it doesn't matter. You're all there for one goal, and that's to win and win championships. And the owner doesn't come in and act like he knows what he's doing in terms of basketball. The owner knows the limitations, and he lets Pat Riley run the basketball team. That is why the Miami Heat are so good. Has nothing to do with the bubble. Has nothing to do with nightlife. All right. Jamie from the Bay. Hey, Grant, I'm a big fan of your Q&A segment. Will you ever let us ask questions to your guests? Probably not. It would be too difficult, and I would uh, I would love feedback from what you like and don't like from the guests that I've had on, but it would be too difficult to have my listeners from CrowdQuestion currently, the way the format is set up, uh, to ask questions. Ross asked, did you ever meet Kobe and have any stories? Also, what do you think? about the legacy he left. He's one of the greatest players in the history of basketball. Um, I met Kobe for the first time when John Barry played for the Sacramento Kings. It was after a Kings-Lakers game at the Staples Center, and we were waiting in the garage, and I was talking with JB, and JB had played with Kobe, and Kobe walked by, and he was talking with JB, but he shook my hand, and I talked to him for like, you know, 30 seconds. But the last time I talked with Kobe Bryant was his last game in Sacramento. And I was doing my show live on the court, okay? And Kobe always took the first bus, always arrived early. And I was really hoping that I would get a chance to thank him. So I see him walk through the tunnel. And at the Arco Arena, to get to the visiting locker room, you had to walk across the floor. So he comes out of the tunnel, and he makes a turn, and now he's in front of what would be the King's bench. And he's got cameras following him and everything else. 
Then he starts walking down the sideline towards the other tunnel. And again, I'm doing my show and I'm on live. And he walks in front of me and I go, Kobe. And he stops. He turns. He walks over. We shake hands. I look him directly in the eye. And I said, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Respect. Whatever it was. But it was a real quick, and I can't remember verbatim what I said, but I wanted to thank him. I just wanted to thank him. And he created more heartache for the Sacramento Kings than any other player that's ever played in Sacramento. No one put more daggers into the hearts of the Kings than Kobe Bryant. But I, I, and I have a picture of that, and I have posted it on social media before. Maybe I'll post it again. But it was uh, one of my favorite pictures now, especially that we've lost Kobe. I had so much respect for him. And out of all the players, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, out of all the players that have ever played against the Sacramento Kings, if you could tell me who's the one player that you don't want to have the ball in their hands at the end of the game, I would choose Kobe Bryant. All right, Rafa, who do you think is the biggest bust in sports history? Boy, oh boy. that That's hard because I don't know if we're going over all the sports. You know, Ryan Leaf, Jamarcus Russell, just to name a couple in the NFL, Sam Bowie of the Portland Trailblazers. Of course, injuries had a lot to do with that. That's that that that's a good one. There would be, I don't know if there is such a thing as the biggest bust in sports history, uh, but those are uh, some of them. Uh, this is from Brendan. Assuming you saw the Last Dance documentary, what did you find most fascinating about the doc? Well, Brendan, first of all, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to have on the director of The Last Dance and the director of The Fab Five and the director of uh, Down in the Valley, which unfortunately never aired. Uh, Jason Hare is going to be coming on the podcast here in the very near future. So I will go over everything with him. I thought the whole documentary was fascinating. I absolutely loved it. And again, the director of The Last Dance will be on this podcast uh, in the next week or two. Ryan says, with the Kings fans being upset and multiple firings over the past couple of years, where do you see the franchise going? I think it's better if I just don't even answer that question and move on. Dan, who was the best and worst Kings coach during your time announcing? Bill Russell was the worst coach by far. And, you know, you would think the best coach would be the coach that had the most success, and that would be Rick Adam. And I have the utmost respect for Rick. So just based on his longevity in Sacramento and his record, um, I, I would pick uh, Rick Adelman. Bobby, what are your thoughts on the Mike Tyson-Roy Jones Jr. fight this month? I did a rant on this a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not a fan of this fight. I'm not a fan of a 54-year-old and a 51-year-old getting into a boxing ring where they're going to be delivering blows. And I've watched both of these guys work out, and they still look like they're in incredible shape. But their brains now are in their 50s. And I've just seen too often what has happened in too many boxers, and I, I just don't like this. Now, I know that if the boxers sign off, it's their life, and they can do what they want, and I get that. But I'm not going to watch it. I... Just, I have a problem with it. I, I don't think 50-year-olds should be hitting each other in the head. I mean, you see what's going on in football, right? Can't use your head. And you look at other sports, and you look at the emphasis on the study of brain matter and everything else, and now you're going to let two guys that still can punch, uh, uh, you know, again, you've, I've watched them. You've watched them. Have you watched them spar? Have you watched them hit the bags? They still look ferocious. So I'm not a fan of this. I'm not a fan of it. I, I just do not agree with this boxing match uh, that is coming up. Again, uh, just go to CrowdQuest or CrowdQuestion.com, CrowdQuestion.com, sign up, and maybe I will answer your question on the next podcast. It's time for Rant. 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 Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection. Waterline repair, plumbing repair, bathroom plumbing, repiping for Kytec and copper pipes. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. New Works Plumbing has experienced technicians on call 24-7. For all of your plumbing needs, go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. 
right. I, I don't know where to go with this James Harden story. I really don't. I did two rants on this last week, right? Uh, we, we heard the reports. ESPN came out with the first report. And they were mentioning culture and that Harden and Westbrook weren't crazy with the direction of the franchise. Then Harden comes out and goes, oh, no, I love playing in Houston. I want to end my career here. Then the Athletic has the story come out, and they go into more of what the issues are with Houston. And one of the things was the star treatment that James Harden gets. And that doesn't surprise me. Everybody in the league knows that. Then the next day, Westbrook apparently informs the franchise that he wants to be out of Houston and demands a trade. Now, here we are, okay, a couple of days after that, and the rumor mill's heating up with the Houston Rockets and the Brooklyn Nets. Now, I said this on my rant last week, and I'm going to say it again. I would have no problem trading James Harden if I'm the Houston Rockets. All right, you've tried it year after year after year. You've put a lot of different players around him, and it hasn't worked. And one of the reasons why it hasn't worked is in the biggest of games, James Harden melts, all right? Elimination games, when you absolutely need James Harden, he melts. And that style of play that the Rockets have played, make a three, miss a three, live by the three, die by the three, not going to win you a championship. So if I'm the Rockets, I'm looking at James Harden, and I'm thinking to myself, if I can get a couple of dynamite players, maybe a draft pick, whatever, I would retool And I would do that if I'm the Houston Rockets. Now, if he ends up in Brooklyn, I'm going to sit back and laugh at this because I don't see any way in the world Harden, Irving, and Durant are going to work. I know a lot of people go, oh, gee, instant championship. Uh Uh-uh. I heard what Ray Allen said. He said it could work, but he also said it could be a train wreck. I'm going to choose the latter. I think it would be a train wreck. One other thing. Sunday's game, New Orleans, San Francisco. How many times do we have to see the NFL make a mockery of football? Contavia Street, the sack on Drew Brees, 15-yard penalty, roughing the quarterback, clean hit, it's football. But yet, in this day and age of the National Football League, you're not allowed to play football if you're tackling the quarterback. I mean, that was maybe the worst call I have seen this year. And the NFL, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. Why? Because we talk about this week after week after week. But that call on Sunday, that penalty was as bad as it gets. And that's my rant for today. That's my podcast for today. Really appreciate you listening. If you don't like that, with Grant Napier. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.